now. His grace is in this building today. And his grace is sufficient. Praise God, praise God, praise God. If you'll just remain standing for one moment, I want to read from the book of Titus. And of course, I'm very happy to see my father here in church. And um, I didn't know if he was going to be able to come, but I came to see him. And uh, we'll visit. Hopefully, we can visit again some tomorrow. In Titus chapter 2, and of course, it's great to see my sister Karen. Uh, like some of you, they got flooded out, but they're finally back in their house. So we get to stay in their house and have a little fellowship. And we appreciate her faithfulness and working for many years. The church, um, some of you may know, but my parents started after they came back from the mission field in Korea, starting the church churches there. Uh, they came back and started a church right here in Prairieville, moved to Gonzales, and uh, the church that there's in Gonzales, they started. And then they started a Spanish church, which... Uh, Centro de Vida, and uh, my sister and her husband still minister and participate there. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, I'd like to begin reading there. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you may be seated. I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about the grace of God. This passage of Scripture says God's grace has gone to every human being. And I believe that, even people who do not know Jesus Christ. At some point, God reaches out to every human being. Every one of us has the witness of God in creation and also the witness of God in our own personal conscience. And if we'll respond to what we know, even if we've never really heard the gospel, if we'll respond to what we know, then God will continue leading us until we can have a saving relationship with him. That's grace. Now, many people define grace as unmerited favor, and that's true, that's good. What that means is grace is a gift, Grace is not something we earn. It's not something we pay for. It's not something we deserve. But it's God's gift to us. God saves us, not because we're better than everybody else, but because he loves us and we've responded to his grace. It's a gift. Now, we believe in living a holy life. In fact, you'll see grace teaches us to live a holy life. But we don't live a holy life in order to get saved. We live a holy life because we are saved. And we want to continue in that relationship that has changed our lives. So when you come today and if you have never received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to live on probation for six months and once you prove that you're good enough, then God gives you the Holy Spirit. No, at the moment of our faith and repentance, the moment of our seeking God, he will fill us with his spirit. That's grace. So we can say that grace is God's gift to us. But that's really only half the definition because that's rather passive. Uh, When we say a gift, you, you just sit there and somebody gives you a gift. That's good. But I would also like to say that grace is God's work in us. 
it's not only God's gift to us, it's God's work in us. Grace is active. It starts changing uh, starts changing us. When you first come to the Lord, you first hear the word, God's grace starts working on your heart to soften up your heart. You might be an agnostic or an atheist or, or, or nominal Christian, but when the word of God goes forth and the spirit of God moves, it starts breaking up the hardened ground of your heart. And then when you turn to God in repentance, we really are not the ones making it happen if, if it was left up to us, we could do a New Year's resolution. And some of us already failed at that. But repentance is not just us improving ourselves. You know, repentance is when God changes us. And then when we're baptized in Jesus' name, it's not merely getting wet. And it's not merely a symbol. But the God's grace works and washes away our sins. The outward water is a symbol of what's happening spiritually. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit and there's a sign, you speak miraculously in a language you never learned. It's called speaking in tongues. We don't do that by our ability. We don't learn it. We don't imitate it. It's not our doing it. Somebody say, why do you have to speak in tongues? Well, look, it wasn't my idea. It was God's idea. I mean, I was just seeking God. He was the one that did that. I didn't do that. I didn't try to make myself speak in tongues. There are many people who receive the Holy Ghost. They don't even know there is such a thing as speaking in tongues. It's God is the one who works in us. And it's not just the, the, the visible and audible miracle, but that itself is also a symbol of the greater thing God is taking control of our lives. And so when we seek to live a holy life, it's not because we're better than everybody else and we're stricter than everybody else and, and uh, we want to prove that we, we can make our way to heaven. It's because God is changing us. He changes our desires. He changes our thoughts. He changes our relationships. He changes the way we talk. He changes the way we dress. He changes what we choose for our amusements. Not because we're trying to reform ourselves, but God starts working on the inside to mold us into a new creation, a new person, and you start seeing the evidence of this transformation on the outside. So if you ever wonder why, why do people here they do certain things or they don't do certain things, this or that, because grace is working to change us. And it's an ongoing process. So grace is God's gift to us, but grace is also God's work in us. Now with that background, I'd like to read something. I want to go to the very end of the Old Testament, and I want to read God's last word under his Old covenant. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. Through them, he gave the Ten Commandments. Through them, he gave the, the Old Testament, the Bible. Through them, he gave the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he made a covenant with them. Unfortunately, they repeatedly violated that covenant. So if you want to know the summation of that covenant, you can go to the very end. It's the book of Malachi, and it's chapter 4. And I would like to read... The last two verses of the Old Testament, it's verse 5 and verse 6, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and verse 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, period, 
end of the Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice there are two major themes. There's a promise and a warning. There's a blessing and a curse. There is an offer of grace, but also a warning of judgment if we reject that grace. So notice the grace first. He says, I'm going to send a great prophet, and he's going to do a work of restoration, reconciliation, revival. He phrases that fathers being reconciled to children, but I think that's kind of a symbol of restoring family relationships and social relationships and, of course, restoring people to their heavenly father. And so what an amazing offer, a prophet to come with a word from God that will change your life, that will change your family, that will change your society. That's a wonderful sign of grace. But he says, if you don't listen, you're left with a curse. Now, we don't like to talk about that, but that is a part of the story. And let me explain why. When God created human beings, he created us to have fellowship with him, to love him, to worship him, to have communion with him. But when we fell into sin, and every human being is sin, we broke that fellowship with God because God is holy. In order to have fellowship with us, he's not going to become a sinner. He can't. It's contrary to his nature. And we are not capable of making ourselves holy. But, of course, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we cannot do for ourselves, Jesus died for our sins, paid the price, buried, rose again to give us a restored relationship. But notice, God is the creator. That by definition, he's the source of life. And he's the source of grace, love, joy, peace. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from God. You know, I believe even an atheist today is enjoying the grace of God although they don't realize it. Because every time they experience love in their family, every time they experience some measure of joy or peace, it's because of God. He's the one who created us with that capacity. He's the one who's orchestrated our lives to give us love, joy, peace, and life itself. But here's the thing. When we live in sin and reject God's grace, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. So what are we left with? Death. That's judgment. That's the curse. That's the lake of fire. That's eternity without God. In other words, God does not send anyone to hell. But people make choices. And they, if they choose, it's just like this electricity here. If we unplug from the electricity, we have no power. Even though it's available, we've got to plug in. God is the source of life. If we disconnect from him, What's the alternative? Death. Now, life on planet Earth is kind of like having a vase of flowers. You can cut the flowers, put them in a vase in water, and they look just as beautiful. And for several days or a week or more, they may look just as good as before. You would never know the difference. But eventually, they're going to wither and die. Why? Because they're cut off from the source of life. It's only a matter of time. So here on planet Earth, we might live 70 years, 80 years, or whatever God gives us. But if we reject the Lord, we refuse to have a relationship with him, we persist in living in sin, we don't take advantage of his offer of grace, we're cut off from the source of life. And although it might look like our life is doing great, we've got fame and fortune and pleasure, everything's going our way, appearances are deceiving. 
it's only a matter of time. Eventually, we'll wither and die for eternity without God. So that's the reality. There's a blessing, but there's also a curse. Now, let's look at the end of the new covenant. That's the age we're living in, where Jesus Christ has come. He's established the church, and this is the new and lasting permanent covenant. This is God's will for us today. So let's go to the end of the New Testament, which is the end of the entire Bible. And this is God's word to us. Of course, the whole Bible is God's word to us, but the Old Covenant was more specifically to those ancient people, and we learn by reading the lessons that were given to them. But the New Testament is given directly to us as the New Testament church. We here today are part of that same church that was established on the day of Pentecost by the apostles and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the very end of the New Testament, which is the end of the whole Bible, which is God's word to us today. In Revelation chapter 22, I'll begin reading at verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What an amazing promise of grace. The Spirit is saying, come. Do you know God's Spirit is moving right here in this service? And whatever your need might be, the Lord is saying, come. I invite you. And not only the Spirit, the bride, that's the people of God, that's the church, that's us. We also say, come. Now, if you read some of the news media or some of the statements that are made by non-Christians, they will try to tell you that Christians are full of hatred, bigotry, prejudice, etc. But let me make it clear. We teach God's plan for the human race. And we warn that if we refuse God's plan, there's trouble for us. But that doesn't mean we hate people. We love people. Because every single one of us has been in that same trap of sin ourselves. We want to offer the same salvation to everyone else that we freely enjoy. So if someone comes in our church and they're not living according to God's word, they're living in violation of God's word, we don't hate them, we don't reject them. We say, come. We want you to come to church because this is where you'll find the answer to life's problems. So we're not rejecting you, but just because we can't endorse certain choices doesn't mean we hate people. No, a true church of God is going to say come to people of every race, every color, every background, every type of lifestyle, every type of sin, even things we personally don't like and would not choose for ourselves. When someone comes having made such a choice, we say we're glad you're here. Come hear the word of God with us. Come experience the presence of the Holy Spirit with us because we believe God will change your life. God will give you something to live for. God's plan is always the best for you, so we want you to come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And whoever is thirsty, come. 
whosoever will. In other words, whoever desires. That's the only qualification. You have to desire it. You have to be thirsty. You have to recognize you have a need. You have to want it. Isn't that amazing? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what label has been attached to your life, God says, if you want to come, I welcome you. If you want to be filled, I will fill you. If you want to be refreshed, Whoever wants it, whoever desires, whoever's thirsty, whoever admits I need help, whoever admits I need God, God says you're the kind of person I want. That means all of us qualify. That means every single person qualifies. That means your loved ones, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors that may be in trouble or in a dysfunctional life, this church is for them just as much as for you and me. Because it's whoever wants it, whoever needs it, whoever desires it. And the truth is we all need it. But God does not force us, so he says you all need it, but it's for those who want it. Now that's the promise of grace. Same message. But let's keep reading. Verse 18 and verse 19. For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophets of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifies these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Now that was verse 18 through 20. Now we see the other side. There's still a warning. There's still possibility of judgment so he says this book is my word if you add to it you're in danger with me if you take away from it you're in danger with me now I think it's obvious that if we took the Bible and we pasted it in some pages of our own doctrine that'd be a scary thing to do or if we tore out some pages of the Bible and threw them in the trash and said you know what I'm not going to listen to that that'd be a pretty dangerous thing to do but Aren't we in danger of doing that if we add our beliefs and traditions and ideas to God's word as a requirement? Our traditions? Now, we need to follow God's word and we need to apply its teaching to our contemporary life and society. But to impose or add religious traditions that are not according to God's word, that's a dangerous thing to do. That's why we try to be careful. We don't look primarily at creeds and councils and developments over church history and popes and all different authority figures that come after the Bible. We try to go back to the Bible, to the first century church, to the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles that he commissioned to his church, to establish his church. That's why we sometimes call ourselves apostolic, meaning like the apostles. Or we sometimes call ourselves Pentecostal, meaning like the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, the birthday of the church because we identify, I believe every generation has to go back to that first century church. We cannot afford to coast on the generations and just accept whatever comes our way over, even though it might have some value or merit, it's what our family has done for hundreds of years, but we, each one of us have to go back to the original church because we can't afford to add to God's word. 
That's why this church, we always baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you read the Bible, that's how they baptized. That's how the apostles did it. And so we're not going to argue with that. We're going to just do it because we don't want to be guilty of adding something else. And that's why we take living for God very seriously. Going back to what I say, it's pursuing holiness, godly, soberly, righteously. doesn't mean you can't have fun and have a good time, but it means take God's word seriously. If you say, you know, I know the Bible teaches modesty of dress, but that's old-fashioned. We have different styles now. Are you guilty of tearing out a page of the Bible? Maybe not literally, but in essence, if you say, oh, yeah, I know it's in there, but I'm not going to follow it. Doesn't that amount to the same thing? And that's why some of these social and cultural issues, they talk about it like it's just your whim or your choice. Well, wait a minute. What does God's word have to say? God's word has to take precedent over my personal opinion because I can't afford to take away something in the word of God. So notice in the book of Revelation, the new covenant ends with the same two themes as the old covenant a promise and a warning, a blessing and a curse, a message of grace, but if we reject God's grace, a message of judgment. But there's one difference. I haven't gotten to the last verse. The very last verse of Revelation, and therefore the whole Bible, 22, 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here's the difference. The Old Testament, the very last word in English is curse. That's the end. Because the Old Testament is trying to lead people to maturity and prepare them. And so it ends with a warning. You better be listening for God's voice or else. But the New Testament ends with a prayer for God's grace. And here's my message today. I finally got to my point. Here's my title. Grace has the last word. I have a message for Life Point Church today. In God's plan for your life, grace has the last word. In God's plan for your church, grace has the last word. Obviously, you must respond in faith. You've heard me explain that. Obviously, you must receive God's grace. But I'm here to tell you, the devil is a liar. God's word for you is not defeat. It is not God's plan for your life to end with a curse. It is not God's plan for your life to end in depression and discouragement. It's not God's will for your life to end in suicide. It's not God's will for your life to end in torment. I'm here to say God's plan for you is grace. In God's plan, grace has the last word. Oh, let's praise the Lord right now. Grace has the last word. There's always hope. There's always a promise of new life. There's always the promise of a new beginning. There's always the promise of healing and deliverance. There's always the promise of forgiveness. I've come to say in God's plan, grace has the last word. Oh, let's praise the Lord right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Grace has the last word. I'm preaching to somebody here today. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on yourself. 
It's not over yet. The story is not finished. The final pages have not been written. In God's plan, grace has the last word. Hallelujah. The great apostle Paul didn't start out as the great apostle Paul. He started off as Saul of Tarsus who blasphemed God. He rejected Jesus Christ. He persecuted Christians. He hunted them down and threw them in jail and some were executed because of him. But God's grace reached even to him. God struck him with a light from heaven. God didn't have to do it, but God's grace will to every person. When God struck him, he knew it was God, but he knew his ideas of God were so mixed up. And so he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. You thought you were worshiping the God of your fathers, but you failed to realize that God has come in the flesh. The God of your fathers is actually Jesus, the very one you've been fighting against. And to Saul's credit, he did the only right, he gave the only possible response. Lord, what do you want me to do? When God's grace comes to you out of nowhere, don't resist it, don't reject it, don't argue with it, don't beat around the bush. Just say, okay, what do you want me to do? Now, there may be some teachings of in the Bible, maybe some things the church teaches, some guidelines we have for leadership or whatever. You may say, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't know really why I have to do that. Well, there's room to pray and study and talk to the pastor and take classes and whatever. But this is the attitude I've tried to have. It may take me a while to figure out what God wants me to do. He may have a hard time getting it through my skull. But if I ever understand what God really wants me to do, end of discussion. It may take a lot of discussion for me to figure out what God's telling me. But once I get the word, I'm going to try not to argue anymore. Time for arguing is over. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Grace has the last word. And so when grace comes, you say, yes. What do you want me to do? He sent him to a preacher named Ananias. Took three days, but over that process, Ananias baptized him in the name of Jesus Christ, laid hands on him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He became the great Apostle Paul, greatest missionary of the church after Jesus Christ, writer of about half the books of the New Testament. Grace, a blasphemer and persecutor and murderer, became a missionary. That's grace. Now, Paul wasn't perfect. I guess he had pretty high standards for himself and for everybody that worked with him. So Paul and Barnabas started traveling together as missionaries. And one time they took a young man named John Mark. Well, I don't, we don't really know exactly the reasons why, but partway through the trip, John Mark got homesick, got nervous, got scared, didn't think he could do it, and so he quit and went home. So when they went on their next trip, Paul said, we're not taking John Mark. He's a failure. He's a compromiser. He's a wimp. Barnabas said, no, let's work with him. And these two best friends in ministry got so frustrated with each other, they argued so harshly that they split up. Now, they didn't backslide. They didn't mistreat one another. You know, they didn't falsely accuse one another or anything like that. But they said, we just can't work together. So Barnabas took Mark. Paul took Silas. So they doubled their effectiveness, and God, God prevailed anyway. But as you read the rest of the New Testament, 
you find the Apostle Peter writing, Mark is my son in the gospel. Of course, you know Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, which most scholars think was the first gospel he written. And many feel that it probably represents the personal reminiscences of the Apostle Peter. Because if you notice Mark carefully, it's very short, to the point, direct, active. Its favorite word is straightway or immediately. Some of the other books wax eloquent about who Jesus is and what he taught. Mark gets right to the point. Let me tell you what he did. It just kind of sounds like the Apostle Peter telling you his stories. We don't know for sure, but, but probably Peter mentored, we know he mentored and guided Mark, but probably even into the writing of his gospel. Then not only that, in Paul's later epistles, Paul recognizes Mark as his son in the gospel and said he's profitable, he's useful, receive him, he's got a great ministry. Now, the two not- most notable apostles of the New Testament are Peter and Paul. Mark was mentored and commended by both of them. You could hardly get any higher in the early church. So the failure, you know, if the Apostle Paul refused to sign your ministerial license, if the Apostle Paul refused to vote for your missionary appointment, you might as well give up and go home. That God has a plan. Even when well-intentioned good people don't see it, God hasn't given up still got to follow the right procedures and policies and et cetera, et cetera. You still got to follow God or leadership. But I'm here to tell you, when you failed, God hasn't failed. When you fall down, God didn't fall down. Get back up because the last word is not failure. The last word is not defeat. The last word is supposed to be grace. So whether it be a sinner needing salvation, or whether it be a Christian needing guidance or going to the next level of ministry and leadership, if you failed, failure is not final. Grace is God's last word to you. And I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost right now. Whoever you are today, God is speaking directly to you. Sometimes people come with their secret thoughts And sometimes God uses a preacher that doesn't know anything about it to speak a word. Sometimes you talk to the pastor. I've had this happen when I was pastor. I remember one of our church members brought this visitor. And afterwards, the visitor was very indignant and angry. Why did you tell your pastor what we talked about? Why did you tell your pastor my private sins? I told you that in confidence. And the guy said, wait a minute, I didn't say anything to my pastor. It brought the guy up to me and said, Pastor, have we talked about this man? I said, well, no, I've never met him before, but I'm glad to meet you. God can use a service like this where there's a word that goes to 100, 200 people, but there can be a personal word to you. If you've been asking God some questions, you've got to listen for the answers. But I have come to tell you in God's plan, Grace has the last word. I'm not compromising with sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't live a holy life. To the contrary, God is God's grace is God's gift to us, but also God's work in us, and we will be accountable in the end for how we've allowed God's grace to transform our lives. 
But having said all that, I end with grace. Let's stand together. The presence of the Lord is here. The spirit of the Lord is here. In God's plan, grace has the last word.